If you have your Bibles, open them to the book of Psalms, Psalm 67. This morning I want us to begin a series focusing on the topic of missions. Now we talk about missions a lot. Uh, we, uh, we give to missions on occasion. And then we hear from missionaries every so often, but I want us in the next several weeks before we get to Christmas, as we look forward to this Lottie Moon Christmas offering, we gear up for that offering, I want us to focus intensely on the subject of global missions. So I want to begin this morning by looking at Psalm 67. So when you find Psalm 67, if you would stand with me as we read from God's Word together. Holy Spirit says through the psalmist, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy for you judge the people with equity. And guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Let's pray. God, it's in this moment we ask that you would, through your word, speak very clearly to us. That we might hear that we might be changed as a result of encountering you in your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. This is how John Piper, a pastor in Minneapolis, began a book focused on the supremacy of God in missions. He goes on and he says these words. He says, missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions. Because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God... Missions will be no more. It's a temporary necessity. But worship abides forever. Over the next couple of weeks, I want us to think deeply about this concept of missions. Now, we've talked about missions in the past We've gone on mission in the past. We, we do missional kinds of activities here at the church. But when we think about missions, do you think that our understanding of missions is driven by this passionate worship of God? Or is it driven by something else? I think that 
maybe sometimes the, the reason we have a problem getting excited about missions or coming and listening to people that have gone on mission talk about what God used them to do. The reason maybe we get, can't get really very excited about going out and sharing our faith with our coworker. I don't think that it's a, an information problem. I don't think it's because we don't understand that when we, when we collect money for Lottie Moon or for regular giving and we collect that money and we give it to the cooperative program, we know cognitively that those, those monies are going out and they're sending missionaries out into the field. We know that when the missionaries get out into the field, missionaries like Reuben's parents, when they get out into the field, we know that they're going to people and they're sharing the gospel and seeds are being sown and people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. We, we know. We understand what's happening. It's not a knowledge problem. I think it's a worship problem. A.W. Tozer once said this. He said, we commonly represent God as a busy eager, somewhat frustrated father, hurrying about seeking help to carry out his benevolent plan to bring peace and salvation to the world. Too many missionary appeals are based upon this fancied frustration of Almighty God. So now God is just out there wringing his hands, not sure what's going to happen with the nations, and he's just pleading with us, please, if you'll just donate one more dollar to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, somehow then maybe these people will be reached. That's not the kind of God that we serve. And if that's the kind of idea, or even in just a limited sense, the kind of way that we think about God when it comes to missions, that he somehow just needs our help to help him out to get this job done, then the problem is... That's not a God worthy of worship. That's not a God that is worthy of worship. And as a result, our missions problem really is a worship problem because our God is too small. Scientists know that light travels at the speed of 5.87 trillion miles a year. They also know that the galaxy which our solar system is in, is a part of 100,000, it's 100,000 light years in diameter, about 587,000 trillion miles wide. It's one of about a million similar kinds of galaxies in the optical range of our most powerful telescopes. It's been estimated that in our galaxy there are more than 200 billion stars in our galaxy. And our sun is just one of them. And he's just kind of a mediocre star, you know. He's, he's not real strong. He's a moderately sized star, burning at 6,000 degrees centigrade on the surface and traveling in an orbit of 135 miles per second. Which means that in 250 million years, we would complete one revolution around the galaxy. Scientists know these things, and they stand in awe at it, amazed. And they say, if there is a personal God, a God like the Christians say that there is a God who, who spoke and the universe was exploded into existence, then there ought to be a certain kind of respect for this kind of a God. There ought to be a reverence for this kind of a God, a wonder, even a dread at the power and magnitude and glory 
of this kind of a God. It ought to change the way that we look at him and worship him. When we look at the Bible, we believe that the Bible is true. When we look at the Bible, we see even more wonderful and amazing things than that. Isaiah in chapter 40, it says, To whom then will you compare me? This is God saying this. To whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created the stars. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. God didn't just make all the stars. He named every single one of them. He knows them. He has intimate knowledge about every single thing in the universe. Our God made everything. And because he has made everything, He deserves worship. In the book of Revelation, as the the elders are falling down upon their knees and as they're casting their thrones before the throne of God, they declare in one voice, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Because you created all. Because you created everything, and by your will they exist and were created. So friends, our our missions problem, it's really a worship problem. God is worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our lives. He's worthy of our time. He's worthy of our money. And so here as we begin looking at Psalm 67... I want you to notice, first of all, our plea. As we approach this majestic and glorious God, we see a plea in verse 1. Look with me at verse 1. It says, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Now, Now, this plea borrows... Similar language from another place in the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 6. We see similar words taking place. It says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This prayer was given by God to Moses to be used by Aaron and his sons in the tabernacle worship. It was later used in temple worship. And here the psalmist uses similar language. To begin this song. The first thing that we see in this plea is that we ought to plead for God's grace. We ought to plead for God's grace. We, we come to God in humility. We don't come to God in pride. We don't come to God thinking that we've got it all together or that we have the best plan or that we know exactly what needs to take place. We come to God as people who don't have it all together. We come to God as people who are in great need of a God. We come to God in humility. We are sinners before God. We are sinners who need God to have mercy upon us. Not one of us here this morning stands right in in God's eyes, in and of ourselves. We are unrighteous people. We are wicked people. We have deceitful hearts. We have sin that is rampant within our souls and sins that people don't even know. The people that are sitting right next to you. 
We are sinners in need of a merciful God, in need of forgiveness. And this is the only basis for a relationship with God. You can't know God any other way. You can't know God in your sin. You can't know God as a proud person thinking that you've got it all together, or at least if you don't have it all together, you're good enough for God. That's no basis for a relationship with God. We don't have a relationship with God based upon our own terms. We don't say, God, I'll worship you. I'll be in a relationship with you. I'll follow you if you take care of my kids. If you make sure that we have a place to live. If you fill in the blank. Too many of us, we try to set terms with God. Say, God, I'll, I'll serve you as long as you don't take this person out of my life. That's not the basis for a relationship with God. God is the one who sets the terms. God is the one who sets the terms. We plead for God's grace. God's grace is the only basis for serving God. You can't serve God on your own. In fact, everything that we do is all muddled up anyway. The best that we have to offer God is not good enough. And it's only because of God's grace in our life, through the work of the Holy Spirit, that we are empowered to work and serve Him faithfully. The grace of God is the only basis that we have for missions. The grace and mercy of God displayed And the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the only basis for missions. It's all about God's grace. Paul says in Ephesians 1, 7, he says, In Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of God's grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Grace is not something that we deserve. We're not entitled to God's grace. The opposite of that. God gives us grace because we don't deserve. It is out of his mercy and kindness. Next, as a part of this plea, we see we desire God's blessing. We desire God's blessing. Now, this is not a request for a a nicer car. (laughs) Like the prosperity gospel preachers want to tell you. It's It's not naming it and claiming it. I wanted a Bentley, I get a Bentley, right? It's not that kind of blessing. It's not a blessing for a better job or something material. It's a request for true blessing, eternal blessing, real blessing, the blessing that was promised to all of those who kept the covenant. In the same chapter in Ephesians, Paul writes that in Christ we have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God is not holding out on you. You look at your life right now and you see trouble and you see trial and you see difficulty. God's not holding out on you. Paul says that God has given you everything. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places belongs to you. Not because of who you are, but it's because of who Jesus Christ is. You've received the inheritance based upon Christ. We desire the blessing of God in our lives. Finally, here in the plea, we see 
We yearn for God's favor. It says that that, that God would, would shine His face upon us. That He would lead us. That He would expose the the darkness of our hearts. That He would heal us, our brokenness. That He he would go before us, just like He went before the nation of Israel. In the day, in a cloud, at night, in a pillar of fire. That He would lead us, clearly. That He would prepare the people to whom we go to declare His goodness and His gospel. We plead for God to be gracious to us. We, we plead for God to bless us and to go before us. And we ask this all for the sake of the nations. It's not for us. We're not asking God to bless us just to bless us. We're not asking for God to have favor upon us just so we'll feel better about ourselves. We're asking God to move upon us for the sake of the nations. Next, look look at God's purpose. Verses 2 down to verse 5. The psalm says that, so that your way may be known on earth. Your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The psalmist's opening verse, this, this plea for blessing. Well, it seems, initially it seems very selfish, doesn't it? It seems very self-focused anyway. But not when we begin to understand the reason behind the plea. The psalmist isn't asking that God would do something amazing for Israel for Israel's sake alone. It's not as though they they would be lifted up as a nation, but but rather he's asking that God himself would be lifted up through the nation of Israel among the nations. He was praying that God would bless them. Not so that they could just simply wallow in their comfortable lifestyle and the blessings that they had all around them, but it was something different. Israel had some very audacious claims. They they really believed that their God was God alone. They really believed that all of the nations around them, that their gods were deaf and dumb and dead. Their idols were worthless. And so the nations would come around them and they would want evidence to support why Israel had such amazing claims. And they would say things like, where is your God? We see our gods. Where is your God? They wanted to know what God could actually do for the people of Israel. They wanted to know what difference does God actually make in your lives. I think sometimes we wonder. We wonder why people are not coming to Christ. Maybe we share the gospel with people around us. Maybe we, we just assume that they should know. We wonder, why is it that that people aren't coming to faith? Why is it that people aren't coming to Christ? The problem is not Jesus. Is it? No. The problem is not Jesus. Jesus is perfect. There's nothing wrong with Jesus. 
Jesus is the balm of Gilead. He heals the soul. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He's the one who reconciles both God and man and has the power and ability to do so. Jesus is the lover of the soul. The problem is not Jesus. John Stott, an English pastor, said this. He said, it may be said without fear of contradiction that the greatest hindrance to evangelism in the church today is the failure of the church to supply evidence in her own life and work of the saving power of God. He says the reason that the people turn away from Christ, it's not so much because they find Jesus uninteresting. It's not, not so much because they find Jesus to be not as winsome as they would hope that he would be. It's not because of the, the selection of songs or the kind of music that we play in our church services. It's not because of the ministries that we offer or the ministries that we don't offer. It's because they don't see lives of Christians as being any different from their own. They look at Christians and they say, well, the people are the same as me. They say the same kinds of things as me. They watch the same kinds of things as me. They listen to the same kinds of music that I listen to. They have the same goals in life, the same purpose, it seems. They don't have any overarching plans to do anything other than what I'm doing. There's no difference between them and me. There's no transformation taking place in their life. We look at this text. What is God's purpose in all of this? It's very simple. That his way would be known on earth. Isn't that it? That's the purpose of God. That his way would be known on earth. And he does this through his people. He, the people that he has been gracious to. The people that he has blessed. The people that... He has caused his face to shine upon this people. God is making known his way through them. Through you. You think your life is small in comparison to the things that God is doing around the world? It's not. You think that your, your sphere of influence is really not that large or really not that important? You're wrong. God is using you. To make his way known upon the earth. He's using you. He's transforming you. He's using your testimony. Friends, if people look at your life and they do not see the imprint of God, then you're missing something. You're missing the very purpose for which you were born again. God's purpose in being gracious to us God's purpose in blessing us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God's purpose in selecting us from the nations and causing His face to shine upon us. It's all for the sake of the nations. It's all for the sake of the nations that His way would be known on earth. What does it mean? What is this way? 
it mean? Think about God's way. The word itself is used all over the Old Testament. It used to, to talk about roads or paths or journeys or a manner of life. The basic concept behind it, though, is, is this idea where uh, one would set their foot on particular territory or objects, sometimes uh, in the sense of trampling them. Right? In Deuteronomy and Joshua, the word is used so that when Joshua and the people of Israel are going over into the land, every piece of land that their foot tramples will be theirs. So how does this apply to God? As His people, what are we supposed to do? We're to declare His goodness, right? We're declaring His message. Peter says that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for His own possession. For what reason? So that you would proclaim, proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. God's way in the world is very simple. It's the rule of His kingdom. It's the rule of His kingdom. It's His sovereign way. His, his kingdom is advancing in this world over top the kingdom of Satan. And we are declaring His might and His strength and the power and truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we have been blessed. We have been shown grace. We have experienced God's favor so that we might tell other people. About his way. The psalmist goes on to talk about God's way. Gives some character qualities to what he means by the way. First, we see it's God's saving power. He says, Your saving power among all nations. God is the one, as we talked about already, God is the one who created the entire universe. He is the one that the nations have rejected. He is the one, He is the only one who can restore them and bring them back from their sins. Psalmist in Psalm 18 says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God and my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. When we declare His way, we're declaring the power of His salvation. Even that phrase there, the horn of my salvation. The horn was an instrument that was used in all kinds of different situations in the Old Testament. One particular way that it was used was on the battlefield. If the enemy was beginning to take your position, you might blow the horn so that you would signal to your, your compadres that you needed help. You needed people to come and, and to guard your left flank or your right flank or whatever. But it was a call for salvation. And friends, God is not only the instrument the horn of our salvation, but He is the one who is actually doing the saving. He is the Savior of the world. In fact, we find this here in Jesus in the New Testament. When the angel comes to Mary and, and tells him what his name should be, what, what does she say? Name him Jesus. Why? Because He will save His people from their sins. He is the Savior of the world. And it's important for us to note that as we look at this text the psalmist is aware that this salvation, the power of God to save, is not just limited to the nation of Israel. But he says it's to all nations. I know all of us probably know that. But I think sometimes we don't think about it in reference to all nations. 
We think about the salvation of God. We think about the small experience that we have here in our own town, among our own people, looking at this word here. And we apply it to our context, but we don't see the wide, far reaches of the gospel to the nations. God is the God who saves people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every people group. His way is a way that is powerful in salvation, but it is also a way that is perfect in judgment. He says, for you judge the peoples with equity. God alone, he's the, the, alone the one who judges the world. No one else gets to. He is the judge of the world. He is the one who created it, and he is the one who will have judgment upon it. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 12, for God will bring every deed into judgment. With every secret thing, whether good or evil, not a single person on the planet will escape the judgment of God. All of us will experience the judgment of God. Every one of us will experience the judgment of God. Maybe you think I'm overstepping because maybe you are a Christian. No, every one of us will experience the judgment of God. The difference alone is when. For those who have not turned to faith in Jesus Christ and repented of their sins, pleaded for God's forgiveness and been changed and born again, they will experience the judgment of God on that last day. For all of those who have turned in faith to Jesus Christ, we have experienced the judgment of God 2,000 years ago in Christ, nailed to a wooden cross. Every single person will experience the judgment of God. The only difference is whether you're in Christ or not. Peter uses an incredible illustration in his letter. He says that Jesus is like the ark. You remember the story in the Old Testament. Noah and his family get into the ark. The judgment waters of God fall upon the earth. And the ark alone carries people to safety and to new covenant life. Friends, that is who Jesus is to us. He is the ark of God. He is the one in whom we have entered into and he is the one who is submerged under the judgment waters of God and he has taken the brunt of God's wrath for us so that he might carry us on to new life, to a hope, to a new covenant, to a new world. This is what Christ has done for us. God, as a result, is both the just, the one who places judgment upon those who must be judged And he is also the one who is the justifier of those who put their faith in Christ. He has perfect judgment. Next, you see that God is faithful in his guidance. He says, you guide the nations upon earth. Isaiah 42, God says, I will lead the blind in in a way that they do not know, in paths that they have not known. I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light and rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. Now, if you're getting tired of me, wake up. Listen to these words. God is the one who guides. God is the one who takes the blind, and he leads them in the right way. God is the one who doesn't forsake. So when you feel like you're blind, when you feel like you don't know the right way to go, when it seems like life is overtaking you, and you don't know what direction to go, Who do you turn to? God. 
And it's not only for us, but our God desires to lead the nations. He will lead them into places that they do not understand, in places that, that contradict their own worldview and their own culture. He will walk them through the paths that are unfamiliar to them. He will guide them to life. He will, he will bring them from death to life, from darkness to light. Friends, he's called upon us to be his voice to the nations. What does the author mean by the word known? How will they be know the Lord? Well, brings us back to the refrains that we see over and over. You heard them, maybe you remember them. To know God is to know him for who he is. To know what he has done. In the world, to know that he is creator God, to know that he is the only one by means of that we can have salvation, to know God is to worship God. And that's why the psalmist refrain, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let the people praise you. Why? Because you're worthy of worship. You are God alone. Let the nations be glad because they're not glad now. Because they don't have answers now. Because they don't have life now. They have no eternal security now. Let them be glad, God. Let them sing for joy. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. So worship. Worship really is the goal. God deserves worship from every single human being on the planet. God deserves the worship of the Sikh woman washing her clothes in the Yangtze River. God deserves the worship of the Sufi man dancing for Allah around the tomb of Rumi in Turkey. God deserves the worship of the Wiccan coven meeting in a forest out in Colorado, reading the book of shadows. God deserves the worship of the atheist co-worker that you have that mock you because of your faith. God deserves the worship of every single person on the planet. And he's called us to be his voice. And I've said it before. Friends, when it comes to missions, you're either going, you're sending with your cash, those who will go, or you're sinning. Do you hear me? When you begin to plan out your budget for Christmas, you begin to see the things that you value. Oh, I hope missions is something that you value. I hope that sending missionaries into the unreached populations of the world is something that you find valuable and that your family can not only give toward but celebrate and come together and and see that this is something that as a family we have prayed about this is something as a family that we have seen the value of because we believe God's word is true and if you're serious about discipling your children that means talking to them and telling them why they're not going to get so many presents this year because as a family You want to celebrate and show love, but you want to see people saved. You want to see the gospel go to the ends of the earth. This is God's plan. Look at their verses six and seven. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. 
Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Because the psalmist knew that God is gracious. God is merciful. This is his nature. And because he knew that as he was asking, his motive was pure. He wasn't asking for his own blessing just for the sake of his own blessing. But he was asking because he wanted the nations to see the light. And we know that God is going to use us to speak and declare his word. To send out workers into the harvest field that will speak his word to the people. And God says in Isaiah 55, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. It is through us. It is through his church. He sends us to the nations so that they might be glad, so that they might rejoice, so that they might worship God. Friends, this is the reason the Southern Baptist Convention exists. You know that? The reason that we have the Southern Baptist Convention, the reason that in 1845 at the Triennial Convention of Baptists, that they came together and said, you know what, let's, let's come together in unity. It was all for what, as they said, for the propagation of the gospel of Christ to the ends of the earth. They came together for missions. It's not because everybody thought the same way. It's not because everybody agreed on every point of doctrine. It's because they agreed on one specific thing, and that was that the gospel needed to go to the nation. And friends, we have an opportunity, like no other Christian denomination in the world, to gather our resources through the cooperative program and to send able and effective and trained missionaries into the field. And that is the reason I want you. That is the reason I want you to pray, seriously pray, about how God is going to lead your family to sacrificially give toward the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Friends, in a day when we ought to be sending more missionaries to war-torn countries, to deserts, to urban cities that are growing at an exponential rate, we are actually pulling back our forces because we don't have enough money. Because Southern Baptists are not giving as they should. Friends, as a church, we are one small element, but let us be faithful element. Let us be a faithful church To send men and women who are already waiting, standing in line, waiting to give their lives for the purpose of the gospel to go. Let's send them. Let's send them. And see this blessing of God, the increase that he will give. One day, many years from now, one day we will stand all together, gathered around the throne of God, and we'll sing a new song. And you know what that new song will say? Worthy are you to take the scroll. To open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priest to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Let's pray.
Father, we believe as a church that center of our existence is our worship of you. And that missions and evangelism and ministry are all outworkings of that worship temperature in our own hearts. Holy Spirit, convince us this morning. Though we know with our brains, Lord, our spirits sometimes are lagging way behind. Convince us that you are worthy of worship, that you are the one who created all things. It is only because of you that all things continue to exist. Strike in our hearts the desire to worship you and let that worship bleed out into every aspect of our lives. In the way that we talk to our families, in the way that we work, in the way that we give toward your mission. God, let us be a faithful church, we pray. In Jesus' name.